Hello, Frighters! I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fighter Fright. Welcome to this episode of Fighter Fright, everyone. I'm Holland, and like I told you last week, this week is going to be a bit of a longer one, so I'm kind of going to just get into it. But before I do, happy Memorial Day, everyone. Well, it's the day before Memorial Day, but you know what I mean. As I told you last week, I think I teased that this week's episode was going to kind of be one of the crimes that got me into true crime. And so this week, I am going to be talking about Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox was born in Seattle, Washington in July of 1987. And in 2007, Amanda Knox went to the University of Foreigners in Perugia, Italy. One of the reasons I got so interested in this case is my sister Carly, she actually went to the University of Foreigners in Perugia, Italy a year after the murder of Meredith Kircher. So my mom and I went to visit my sister in Italy and we saw like just a shit ton of people outside of a building. And obviously my mom and I had no idea what the building was. So we were talking to my sister and we're like, what, what is this? Why are there so many people there? What's going on? And my sister told us, oh, that's Amanda Knox must be going in to court today. And so that obviously just piqued my interest. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going on there and who Amanda Knox is, because I didn't know much about Amanda Knox before my sister studied abroad. Knox ended up rooming with a girl named Meredith Kircher. They also had two other Italian roommates. From everything I could find, they were they were friends, but they weren't best friends. They were kind of just acquaintances and cordial. They lived together. They were both in a new city trying to figure things out. And I will say that they are definitely braver than me because when I studied abroad, I went to Dublin because they at least spoke some form of English that I could understand. And I didn't want to go out of the country for the first time and have to learn a new language on top of that. So they were definitely braver than me, but they didn't know each other that long. I mean, they'd just gotten there. They didn't know each other before this, obviously. So they they weren't lifelong or best friends, but they were they were cordial enough. And one of the things Amanda says on her Netflix documentary is that she found Meredith to be very sophisticated. And she even also describes herself before going to Italy as this very quirky, like her own kind of person. So they got along, but weren't best friends. And when Amanda lived in Washington, she held a few jobs while going to the University of Washington, and things just kind of seemed to be easier than she thought it would. So she ended up getting a job at a pub called Le Chic in Perugia. Again, I could not imagine going to a new country, having the guts to get a job while you're studying. Like, I, I much rather like gone out, went to the pub with friends, listened to live music, all that kind of stuff when I studied abroad. But I mean, that was a probably a great way for Amanda to kind of 
learn the language, learn the culture, and just immerse herself in it even more. So I think that's actually pretty cool. So on November 1st, the night of November 1st, 2007, Amanda was told that she didn't have to go to Le Chique and she didn't have to work that night. And she'd met a guy named Raphael the week before and they'd spent all their time together. They were boyfriend, girlfriend. They were hanging out with each other. And she was hanging out with Raphael before she went to Le Chique. But then she got the text that she didn't have to come in. So she ended up just staying at Raphael's place, cooking dinner, doing all that kind of stuff. So when she came back the next morning on November 2nd, 2007, there were a couple weird things that were going on, and I'll get more into that in the investigation, but they ended up finding Meredith Kircher's body, and she was found partially clothed with her throat cut. The prosecutor, Giuliano Mignini, and I hope that's how you pronounce it, I'm just an American, I don't know if that's correct, but from the way I see it, it's Giuliano Mignini. From the beginning, he had an idea in his head of what happened. He had a theory that it was a sadistic sex game that went wrong, and he wasn't really a fan of Amanda to begin with. He just, he kind of felt that she didn't react the way she should, and she didn't hold up well under questioning, that he he just kind of didn't like her attitude. So he just kind of made everything fit that he could. And I mean, Amanda was just shocked and worried because her roommate was found dead. I mean, she lived there too. So if she had been there that night, like went home after working at Le Chic, she's, she's under the impression, oh my God, this could have been me. So she's kind of shocked, stressed, freaking out. And no one really knows how they're going to react in a situation. So I don't know. It's he put they put a lot of stock in how she acted and reacted to things after the after Meredith's death. But everyone reacts to a shock, trauma, tragedy, that kind of thing. Everyone reacts in a different way. The media very, very quickly got involved in this investigation. And in the Netflix documentary, there was one reporter that they spoke to a lot, and his name was Nick Pisa. And he was a British journalist. He was freelance and worked with the Daily Mail. And everyone wanted to be the first to have the story because Meredith's death was all over the world. I mean, this was something that shocked the world. It was a a student studying abroad. I mean, everyone does that. So this just became huge news. And the media got hold of the prosecutor Mignini's story and started printing articles about a sex game gone wrong. And so three days after Meredith was found dead, Raphael and Amanda were like extensively interrogated. She said she was exhausted, threatened with violence, And in the end, she ended up implicating the pub owner of Le Chic, which is Patrick Lamumba. She said that they would slap her, tell her to remember, slap her, tell her to remember, etc. The police deny it, but still, that's what Amanda is saying is this is how she was treated. 
And on top of that, she was shocked and exhausted. With Raphael, they were telling him that Amanda was a cow and a slut and American and not one of like just all of this stuff. They were just they were trying to get them against each other, essentially. Because of Amanda's implication, they brought Lumumba in and he ended up spending two weeks in jail. But after two weeks, his alibi was completely verified and he was let go. He eventually ended up suing Amanda for libel and he won because she implicated him in a crime that he obviously had an alibi for. He didn't commit it. I mean, granted, I don't know if Amanda did either, so, but he ended up winning that. Now I'm going to go into some of the actions that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. So while investigating, they found out that Amanda went home on the second that morning after a night with Raphael. She brushed her teeth. She showered. And she was she was a little weirded out. There was a few drops in the sink. And then she was like, maybe someone just cut themselves or something like it wasn't enough blood on the sink to really raise any alarm bells. And so then she took a shower. She got out of the shower. And when she got out, she noticed that there was blood on the bath mat. And so she was a little confused, but again, kind of pushed it aside. Maybe someone cut themselves shaving or something like who who knows? There's so many theories as to what could have happened. But what really got her was that there was still shit in the toilet. Like someone didn't flush their shit and she was really weirded out by this. And she ended up calling Raphael and Raphael came. They took a look at the place and they couldn't open Meredith's door. So they kind of just started knocking and they're like, Meredith, Meredith. And they thought it was weird. It was locked. And they ended up calling the police. And so police come, they get Meredith's door open and that's when they find her body. But for me, being a woman, I don't know how how alarmed I would be because as gross as this sounds, I and I know this is gross, but like she lived with three other girls. I mean, someone could have cut their leg shaving and blood got on the bath mat. And then when they were trying to clean themselves up, stuff got on the sink. So they could have honestly, a, one of the women could have gotten their period. Like, I know that's gross, but like. I think that a lot of times, especially when you're in a country by yourself, you really don't want to think the worst has happened. So I don't know. I don't know what I would do in Amanda's situation either because I've never been in it. I still think that the person not flushing their shit down the toilet is completely fucking gross. And ugh. anyway, people didn't like the way that Amanda reacted. They thought it was weird that she didn't notice the blood on the bath mat before she got out of the shower. They thought it was weird that the drops of blood on the sink didn't raise any alarm bells for her and blah, blah, blah. Then there was a new player. His name was Rudy Guede. It's G-U-E-D-E, Guede. Again, I'm American, ignorant American. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. He was brought back to Italy after being found in Germany without a ticket and his DNA had been matched to a vaginal swab that they took from Meredith. He told the investigators, of course, because you're not going to admit rape, but he told the investigators that it was consensual sex. 
I don't know what happened. I ran af- I ran out because I found her dead after I went to the bathroom. But the sex was consensual. That's what he told the investigators. I don't know. I wasn't 100% if the shit was his, but the DNA found on Meredith was hers. So I'm pretty sure it was his shit that was found in the toilet. And like, I'm sorry, but why, why wouldn't you just flush it? Like, I don't know if you could get DNA or if there's anything to do, but why would you leave that behind and not flush it? That's just, it's one gross, but two, like, I don't know if that could lead any, I don't know. Anyway, in July of 2008, Amanda, Raphael, and Rudy were all charged with the murder. Once they were charged, Rudy ended up asking for his own fast-tracked trial. He believed that Amanda and Raphael's lawyers were bad-mouthing him, trying to push the blame on him, trying to minimize the trying to minimize what Amanda and Raphael did and pushing all of it towards Rudy. And in this fast-track trial, he was found guilty and ended up being sentenced to 30 years. But he appealed it, and I couldn't find out why, but in the appeal, it was brought down to 16 years. And then in January of 2009, Raphael and Amanda's trial began. There's an interesting fact that I found. So there was so much media from all over the world that the courthouse couldn't really hold everyone in the seats. There were some reporters that had to sit at the defense table. And I mean, like, how fucking awkward would that be? Because they're sitting at the defense table with Amanda and Raphael. And these media are painting Amanda as a monster, a sex addict, kinky sex person, just all of these things. They're painting her as this person. And then I saw something that said they were sitting at the defense table. That's just, that had to be some some awkward moments, man. But Knox testified in front of the court about the tactics that the police used. She told them how they called her a stupid liar. They got physical and, like I said, they would slap her, tell her to remember, slap her, tell her to remember. And in the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix, they ended up, she ended up saying that while they were doing all of this stuff, she was exhausted, shocked, all of this. And that's why she implicated Lumumba because they were telling her, they're like, this text that you said, it literally means that he, you have an appointment to meet him. It's not like, see you later. It's like, you have an appointment to meet him. And they used like, it was the way that she communicated in Italian to him that they kind of got caught up on. And so the police deny physical, getting physical with Amanda. So I'm not going to say one way or the other because the only people that know were in that room. Even with just the exhaustion and the hours of interrogation, you can start to make your mind think things that didn't actually happen. And especially with like coercive tactics and things, which I'm not completely saying that the police used, but you can implicate someone. And that was one of the big things. They're like, well, if you implicated Lumumba, then that was just to put us off your track. That's the reason you gave us his name. He's completely innocent. Why would you put a completely innocent man in jail and implicate him if you're not guilty? Which I don't, I'm not sure I completely understand the logic, but 
Amanda got up and testified to all of these things. And she spoke about how the media was portraying her and her behavior and how she reacted to things and how it was completely taken out of context. The knife that they said killed Meredith was found during the investigation and it was a very standard, nondescript knife. There was nothing special about it. Anyone could have one. I mean, fuck, I probably have one that looks almost exactly like it in my kitchen that I use when I'm cooking. Like, there was absolutely nothing special about the knife that they found. And Amanda basically was tried by the media, and they were ruthless. They got a hold of her diary. I'm telling you right now, like, I'd be fucked if someone found my diary and printed the things on it. Not because what I'm writing is super bad, but like, that's just embarrassing. That's a total invasion of privacy. And one of the things in the Netflix Amanda Knox documentary that stuck out to me was Nick Pisa. They ask and they're like, how did her diary, like, how did you get that? And he just had this, I, I don't know if this is just how the documentary painted it. He kind of had this like sly look on his face and is like, I don't give away my sources or something to that extent. And it was just, it was really weird, but like people write stuff in their diary and a lot of times it's completely over-exaggerated. I mean, I remember high school, middle school when I had a diary and everything was woe is me and so dramatic and you, it's a way to let out like your, let off steam and get out frustrations and all of that. It's, it's not something that should be used to basically have the media try you. They got hold of pictures that were completely out of context. One of the pictures was of Amanda. She was laughing. It looked like she was in a museum or something that had like a machine gun. It it just looked like she was in a museum or someplace and she was like laughing and all of this stuff. And then there was a picture of Raphael where he was dressed as a mummy with a meat cleaver. And they used all of these pictures and they used these things to fit their narrative. And so, I mean, I'm a really fucking weird and quirky person. I feel like I'm kind of my own individual, kind of like Amanda described herself before she studied abroad. I, I don't know how I would react or how I would fare under media scrutiny because I don't know how I would react in the situation she was put in. I mean, you have to remember, she knew Meredith for four to six weeks at this point, maybe. And one of those weeks, she spent almost the whole time with Raphael, like every waking moment with him. And she worked on top of all of that and went to school. So she lived with Meredith. She knew Meredith, but it's not like they were besties that were super close and knew each other for years. As hard as this is, like, she was shocked, sad, all of this stuff. But the death of someone that you've known for, like, three weeks is not going to affect you the same way that it's going to affect you when, like, a grandparent or a parent or someone like that dies. I mean, it's still devastating and tragic, and I believe Amanda would even say that. But I mean, when it comes to being quirky and weird, my when my momor died, I loved my momor. We were super close. And I get very uncomfortable when everyone around me is sad because I don't know how to react. 
And so I was like six or seven years old. And when they were bringing my Momor's coffin to the hearse, I started singing like Momor's rolling and like moving my arms and like doing stuff because I wanted to lighten the mood because I got very uncomfortable with how, with the energy and emotions around me. So I don't know how I would even handle this scrutiny that Amanda was put under. In December 2009, Raphael and Amanda ended up being found guilty of murder. Amanda was sentenced to 26 years and Raphael was sentenced to 25. I mean, obviously they appealed. They didn't do it. They'd been stating from the beginning that they were innocent. Amanda Knox's lawyer, Luciano Giergo, spoke to reporters saying, we have to prove her innocence, which is more difficult to do. And that's kind of true. Like, when you're at the first trial, when it's not appeal, the prosecution has to prove your guilt. But when you're appealing, it's more on the defense to prove your innocence. And that's not always easy to do. On the stand, Amanda started crying and said that she was condemned for a crime she didn't commit. The defense had some help, though, in the appeal because the evidence had been re-examined. They found that the crime scene was not sterilized. There were no protective suits. There were no booties to cover their shoes. When they were working with evidence, gloves were rarely used. I mean, the scene was total chaos. And all of this was on video. I mean, you can actually see the video the investigators take on the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix. And you can see like people touching stuff without gloves, going in without protective suits, not wearing booties. I mean, that contaminates the crime scene. You need to take these precautions. But I will say that Italy is a different country and I'm speaking from an American perspective. And they also found that the lab was contaminated. That knife I was telling you about that was nondescript that had both Amanda and Meredith's DNA on it, the knife was found in Raphael's place, which Amanda had said she's cooked with him. She's been near him. She's been in his place. Like her DNA makes sense to be on the handle of that knife because they had cooked together before. Meredith's DNA, though, that was such a small amount of DNA that the likelihood that it was contaminated was so freaking high. And the knife they found out was tested with a bunch of Meredith's other belongings. So when this was found out, us Americans had a lot to say about the Italian justice system when they found out the only DNA linking, the only DNA linking Amanda Knox was tainted, contaminated, and shouldn't be admissible. <sighs> even, even that, that great, great President Trump, even he had something to say about it. I mean, he, he was under the impression that we should boycott Italy. And I saw this in the Netflix documentary and was like, oh my gosh. But anyway, shocker, Italy didn't like our input into their court and justice system. And I can kind of understand that. I mean, it's two different countries, two different systems, two different places with two different types of laws because there's different experiences in both countries. So I can kind of get where they're like, mm, 
maybe don't put any input on what we're doing. Just focus on yourself, America. Then it was Guido's turn to take the stand at the appeal. And he would not say anything about Amanda and Raphael's innocence. He just, he got up there, went with the prosecution, didn't say anything about their innocence, didn't let them off the hook at all. But then Amanda got onto the stand and said, the only time Rudy Guide, Rafael Solicito, and I were in one room together was in the courtroom. He knows the truth. I don't know what happened that night. And so DNA specialists assist the defense by testifying that the evidence linking Knox to the crime was completely unsound. There was a bra clasp that they found And it was not taken into evidence until six fucking weeks after they started the investigation. There's no doubt that it had been contaminated at that point, especially if people aren't going in with booties and all of these things. And this has nothing, I'm not saying anything about Perugia's justice system or how they do things. I went there. It's It's small. They probably hadn't seen anything as brutal as Meredith's attack before. I don't I don't know. They might not have been equipped to deal with it, but they might not have known what to do. I I have no idea. I can't speak to them. I wasn't there. They found out that a lot of these things were contaminated. The experts that were appointed by the court went through every single point that the prosecution had against Knox and spoke to the errors that were made and said that none of it should have been admissible in court. So in October of 2011, Amanda Knox and Raphael's murder convictions were overturned. And I mean, she got fucking out of Italy right quick, man. She went right back to Seattle, wanted nothing to do with Italy in that moment anymore. She just wanted to be home and away from everything that happened. Sadly, the Supreme Court came back and said that Amanda Knox and Raphael were going to be retried. During this, both Raphael and Knox did not return to court during this retrial. Their lawyers handled it. Knox said that she would not return to Italy on her own accord or not return willingly. In the end, Amanda Knox and Raphael are convicted again. All of the stuff that came up in the fucking appeal, they were convicted again. And their sentences ended up being even longer than the first trial. So in March 2015, those murder convictions were also overturned. And it ended the horrible experience. They were basically acquitted. They weren't going to be tried again. The whole ordeal and experience was over for Raphael and Amanda Knox. The Italian Supreme Court, in their final verdict, said there was stunning flaws in the investigation and increased media attention created a frantic search for guilty parties. When this case was overturned and the convictions were overturned, Mignini was waiting to see if he would get in trouble for abuse of office. I followed this case fairly closely while it was going on, especially after I got back from visiting my sister when she was in Perugia, I'm pretty sure that while he was trying Amanda and Raphael, while their court cases were going, 
I'm pretty sure for like a different occurrence, he was in trouble for misuse of office. I could be wrong, but I feel like I remember seeing that somewhere. And so in 2015, he was disciplined by the High Council of the Judiciary because he did not follow procedure in the arrest of Raphael. In the end, he was issued a censor, which is basically what my roommate who went to law school She said that it's basically a slap on the wrist and can sometimes incur a fine. I don't know. I think I think it's really hard because I have a roommate right now and I'm thinking if something were to happen to her and I came home, I just I don't know how I would react. I really don't like she's she is actually one of my best friends and I love hanging out with her. And if I came home from work one day and found something had happened to her. Well, first, she made me promise that I wouldn't make a Facebook memorial page for her because she's not big on social media like I am. So I promised her that. But I mean, I it's really hard to know how you're going to react in a stressful, shocking situation. I feel like it was unfair for the media to take all of these things out of context and try to describe who Amanda was through them. I mean, they were calling her Foxy Noxy and all of these things. Like, it was just, it was just kind of like a total shit show. And reporters cared, to me, it seemed like they cared more about getting the story out and having it fit a narrative that was interesting to sell papers instead of really digging into the facts before they put something out. I could be completely wrong, but that's just kind of how it felt to me when I was reading all of this stuff. Because if you read the newspapers, you look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, Amanda's guilty. She's a horrible monster. She did this, blah, blah, blah. When you hear about all the evidence being contaminated and all these things, you start to think. And so in 2019, Amanda Knox finally returned to Italy for the first time since her horrible, crazy, chaotic experience. And she spoke on a panel that was ironically called Trial by Media. She blamed prosecutors and media for creating this version of her that suited their story. Kind of like I said before. She said, to the world, I wasn't a suspect innocent until proven guilty. I was a cunning, psychopathic, dirty, drugged up whore who was guilty until proven otherwise. And the story attracted global media attention with headlines such as dead girl feared Noxy sex toy and took part in sex attack and allegation of orgies and sex toys. And I'm not kink shaming. People can do whatever the fuck they want, but If you don't have evidence that this is what happened, if there was semen found on the body, there wasn't a sex toy or orgy that happened when Meredith died. It was a rape and a murder. That is very different than an orgy and sex toys. I just, I, anyway. So now Amanda is back in Seattle. She is married and I believe I saw in one of the articles that she has her own podcast, and I think it's about wrongful convictions. 
She has the documentary I've referred to a couple times on Netflix called Amanda Knox. Now I'm just going to close out with some of my some of my final thoughts. This is something that stuck with me from the documentary. What is more likely? In all honesty, when you think about it, is it more likely that Amanda got two people? One, that there's no evidence she ever even met or was linked to. And they raped Meredith and then she stabbed them. Or, Guide, a guy who had burgled before went into the house to steal and rob them, came across Meredith, killed her and ran. I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, Amanda lived there, so her DNA was probably all over the house. I mean, that was where she was living in Perugia. But from what I saw, there wasn't any like DNA evidence tying Raphael to Meredith's murder. The only thing that tied Amanda was a knife at Raphael's house that the knife was contaminated and got DNA from Meredith on it, most likely because they tested it with a bunch of other of Meredith's belongings. So if you think about it, is it more likely that Amanda Knox is a fucking horrible psychotic monster? Or is it more more plausible that Guide, whose DNA was found on Meredith and had burgled and robbed before, went into steel and came across Meredith and killed her? I mean, in my opinion, I know what I think. And I think that it's more likely that Amanda had nothing to do with this. And I don't think we'll ever fully know. I think the investigation and the evidence and everything, it was just so chaotic and so much for a town that hadn't experienced something like this before. It was so much for them to handle. I think there were mistakes made. And that's not to say anything about Italy because the U.S. makes mistakes a lot too when it comes to evidence and when it comes to some towns not being able to handle a case because they haven't experienced something like it before. This has nothing to to say about Italy's justice system because I'm sure it's it's great and it works for them for the most part. I just think in this one situation, there were some things that happened and those contaminations, that evidence ended up putting Amanda Knox on the front page to get a great story and to find the person quick who did this because it was a small town that was freaked out and hadn't experienced something like this before. That's all to say that Mignini still believes that he got it right from everything I've seen. I haven't seen articles from like 2019 or 2018 or something, but from what I've seen, he still believes that he got it right and that Amanda and Raphael worked with Guide. He can't admit that he was wrong and that there was any mess ups in this investigation. And there was a quote that I also got from the Amanda Knox documentary that one of the one of the guys said, it's actually a quote from Cicero. And the quote is, any man is liable to make mistakes, but only a fool perseveres in errors. And I think the sad thing is, when it comes to Meredith's family, they lost a daughter. It's horrible what happened to Meredith. And it's horrible that that family has to go through it. 
But also, it's horrible that McNini will not admit that there were mistakes. At least from what I found, he's not admitting that there were mistakes. And so there's always going to be that part of Meredith's family, no matter if Amanda Knox was convicted or not. I mean, I saw that they were upset that she went back to Italy for the trial by media. There's always going to be a part of them that fully believes Amanda Knox had something to do with this. And I also think that we will never know what happened on the night of November 1st into the morning of November 2nd. I don't think anyone will ever know except the person that killed Meredith. I believe Guide is a great suspect. They found his DNA. But I also believe the only thing tying Amanda was contaminated. I believe that she was at Raphael's house. I believe she wasn't home. And I believe that she is just a quirky goofy person that had never had a situation like this happen and didn't know how to react in the moment. No one would. You don't know how you're going to react when you're far from home. You don't have your family. You don't even really have your friends there. You just have the few people that you met and then one of them ends up dead. Like, you don't know how you're going to react. Crazy, crazy fucking situation to happen. And like I said, I think we'll never fully know I do think Amanda was at Raphael's house and that the DNA was fucked. The only thing against Amanda was that McNini didn't like her and that she didn't react the way that people expected. And like I said, that's a tragedy for Meredith's family because they're always going to have in the back of their mind that Amanda was a part of this. And I just, I, I think that's really sad because they're always going to have that idea and they're never going to feel like justice is fully served. I, I, I don't think Amanda was part of it. I want to end the episode on that, but also on social media, I had a couple people ask me some questions. My good friend Kelly, shout out to Kelly, um, asked me who my favorite serial killer was. And it's a hard one because... I wouldn't necessarily say he's my he's my favorite, but I've always been fascinated by Ted Bundy. And the reason I'm fascinated by Ted Bundy isn't because like what he did or anything like that. The way that they describe him and his charm, it's so freaking fascinating to me that girls that looked exactly like his fucking victims were lined up behind the defense table trying to get a look at him and a smile or a wink or something from him when they looked exactly like his victims. It's just insane to me. So I wouldn't say that he's my favorite, but I will say that he is the one that I've researched the most and am the most fascinated by. My other friend, Jess, on social media asked me how I pick episodes. So... I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I listen to Let's Go to Court, My Favorite Murder, Red Handed, Case File, all of these things. I I love crime podcasts. I The way I go about picking my cases is I go to Google and I try to look up different mysteries or crimes that people haven't heard a lot about or don't know much about which actually the Amanda Knox one fits in because when I was back living on the East Coast, I'm now in Seattle too, but when I was living on the East Coast and I would talk about Amanda Knox, I was amazed at how many people had never heard 
of that story. But I mean, I probably wouldn't have known as much about it either if I hadn't gone to Perugia and seen the fucking mass of people. But yeah, so I go to Google and I try to Google and look up lesser known crimes just because I don't want to do crimes that every single podcast I've listened to before has already done. And there's one more question from someone from Bruh is a Murder. They asked me, what two radio stations do you listen to in the car the most? And great question. So here in Seattle, I don't have a car. So I basically just listen to Apple Music or podcasts. But when I was on the East Coast and living in Philly and D.C., I had a car and I would listen to B101 or Q102. Those were the ones that I listened to the most if I wasn't plugging in my iPod or plugging in my phone to listen to music. So thank you for the questions, guys. It was amazing. And if anyone else wants to ask me questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And you could also email me if there is a case you want me to cover. I would be happy to. You can email me. And if you tell one of your friends about this podcast, if you like it, if you like this episode, if you like the three episodes before this, and you tell a friend and show me that you were able to pass this along to a friend by word of mouth, or if you rate and review this podcast, I will give you a shout out on the next episode. And if you have any questions, again, feel free to ask me. I'll answer them at the end of next episode. Thank you guys for tuning into this episode and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod and on Gmail at Fight or Fright Pod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at Fight Fright Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland, and I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this fright.